This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Start Giving acknowledges the traditional custodians of the hundreds of First Nations across this richly diverse continent. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, including to those listening. Hello, and welcome to the Start Giving podcast. I'm Daniel Petrie, the founder and chair of Start Giving. My guest today is Cliff Albrecht, the co-founder and COO of Canva, one of Australia's fastest growing and most successful tech startups. Launched in 2013 by Canva CEO Melanie Perkins and her husband Cliff and Cam Adams, Canva is an online design and visual communications platform with a mission to empower everyone in the world to design anything and publish anywhere. Canva has over 130 million monthly active users in over 190 countries. Cliff and Mel each own an 18% stake in Canva, valued at billions of dollars, and they're pledged to transfer more than 80% of their wealth to the Canva Foundation for Charitable Causes. Welcome, Cliff. So look, two normal but very smart humans out of Western Australia who are now leaders of a massive global tech company. When did the idea of philanthropy or helping others become something in your life? I mean, from the earliest days of travelling, when Mel and I were at university, even before we sort of saved up all our pennies from our crappy part-time jobs and travelled to cheap places, which inevitably had a lot of poverty. Like we went to India for three months as our first big trip together and it was quite confronting to see the level of inequality in the world, uh, which we really didn't have that much awareness of. Like maybe you go on a few trips when you're a kid to Bali or whatever and you see it a little bit, but backpacking around India um, really brought home the inequality in the world and and that really planted the seed. And, And even back then when we had no money, we would just try to help people out, like just just like haphazardly, like buy someone a meal or bought a bunch of kids some clothes, et cetera, et cetera. And that then just became part of like our, our DNA. Like if there's people in need and you have excess, of course you're going to help. Like it wasn't really like a an aha moment. It just is like a common sense thing and like a humanity thing. And so when we like Canvas started to do well as the company, We'd done a bunch of things. Like we were already doing some giving through Canva and the um, 1% pledge. But as a sort of our paper wealth started to grow, we started to think a lot more about, hey, we need to do something about this kind of now. Like we can't be seen to be billionaires in paper, yada, yada, and, and not be doing something proactively. And so like the weight of the resources we had at our disposal really prompted us to take that action. And even though it was all tied up in paper money, we said, hey, we actually need to start liquidating some of this stuff because the title of a billionaire doesn't sit well with us and we need to start distributing that. And that led us to sort of experimenting with it. I'm giving you a very long answer for the first question. but like, it's good though. No, it's a good answer. <laughs> we started experimenting with a, a huge bunch of stuff, essentially like just like starting a company you need to start. And that act of starting and taking that first step is probably the the hardest thing, like quitting your job and doing the thing. That's very difficult, but you learn so much in the process. And we invested in a bunch of different projects. We made a bunch of mistakes. Some were good, some were maybe not so effective. And we started to really hone in what was important to us. And then over the years, and, and, and a key part of what prompted that was the 1% pledge. And so for anyone 
I think this applies to individuals, but especially to companies, just allocating 1% of your net resources or your income on an annual basis really is a good forcing function. Like 1% is not much, but just having that forcing function of what are we going to do with this 1% forced us to start taking those first steps. And then those from those first steps, we learned, evolved, and, and sort of continued on that journey. Uh, look, it's been an amazing journey and an amazing insights for you guys to start so early. Uh, why don't I sort of pick up on a couple of things there? One is, as you've already kind of said, you've pretty much, at least publicly, quickly decided to allocate more than 80% of your paper wealth, your Canva wealth, to charitable causes. And as we all know, that's in billions of dollars. And you made that commitment much, much earlier than most people would do in your situation where you're, you're building a company. So firstly, what you're doing is simply amazing. As I've said to you privately a number of times, it's truly inspiring. But how did you come to that decision so early to publicly state that you're allocating so much of that wealth to philanthropy? Yeah, I think it's actually about 95%. Sorry. I don't know how the dilutions worked out over the last year with hiring people. You, you slowly get diluted when you're in a, a decent-sized company and hire a lot of people. But we owned about 31% of Canva and, and we're giving away 30% of Canva. So, like, yeah, so we, we're keeping 1% pretty much. And uh, that just is sort of like who knows what's going to happen. But we'll give that away as well because we don't want to go to the death and leave lots of money for our kids or anything like that. So I don't know. It was just like it wasn't like a decision for us. It was, it was a decision to start like evoking the mechanics of how we need to transfer that and set it up logistically because that's quite – it's quite a process. It's, it's going to be the largest sort of philanthropic transfer in Australia's history, so we need to get – I won't bore you with the details, but private taxation rulings, et cetera, et cetera. But the actual act of deciding, it was just obvious because it was like, how much money do you need, right? Like we're very fortunate. We have a nice house. We have like two cars. We've got everything we need and we can travel. So it's like, and not fancy cars. We've got a Corolla and my car, which is a Land Cruiser for camping. But yeah, we've got all we need and we've got a bit of excess. And then how much, like, what are you going to do with a billion dollars? Seriously, it's crazy. It's refreshing, and I 100% agree with all your comments. It's just surprising to me how different it is from, you know, if you go back to the old rich white guy cohort, their argument, and I, as I've had for 30 years with many, is that they can't afford to focus on anything while they've got their day job. And I, I think the way you've approached it, you've come from a basic humanity, which is, well, of course, we can help, we should help. How do you guys think about time allocation between, you know, work, family, and philanthropy, given you're still building your family and, and you're building canvas still to what it can be, which is, you know, probably a, a lot bigger than it is today. So how do you guys think about time allocation between all these parts of your life? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, and there are a few ways of looking at it. There's the Warren Buffett method where he he focuses 100% of his time on building wealth and has then essentially distributed all that through the Gates Foundation, which is a fantastic foundation. We didn't want to do that. We feel some of the best sort of skills we have to offer beyond like the money is our intellectual capacity. And we don't really think we're adding tons of value right now because we're just in a massive learning mode. So we're working with really, really good partners and we get deeply involved in these projects. Give Directly is, is our largest partner. Um, then we're working with Prevail on a, a structured pedagogy and education project. You need good partners, right? So you're not having to dive in and problem solve every tiny nuanced thing in, in whatever project you're running. So good partners are key. 
And then just allocating time. So Mel and I both have Wednesday mornings as our kind of philanthropic carve out. And so if there's going to be any, like we had some meetings today, I got an update from the Structured Pedagogy Project. But Wednesday mornings is the morning where we'll take those meetings, we'll do the thinking and we'll sort of time box it. You mentioned, I think it might be interesting for people who are listening to the podcast to talk a bit about your sort of amazing partnership or commitment to Give Directly, which I think you guys have allocated over $30 million to already to help the poorest of people in Malawi. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that project and sort of the impact it's having? Yeah, it's an amazing project. It's an amazing team. Essentially, the premise is you have a lot of poor people in the world uh, and the world's poorest people, how can you help them, right? And there's a lot of probably great projects that give them goats or blankets or mosquito nets or whatever. And, and that sort of like implying that, you know, what they need, but give directly is just about giving these folks money. And the argument that everyone comes back with straight away is, Oh, what if they're going to spend it on drugs and alcohol? And the reality is, is that pretty much doesn't happen. Like I'm sure there's some edge cases, um, but ultimately the data says, and like the programs show that that doesn't happen. We started our first big give in Malawi last year with $10 million and then have scaled that up to $20 million this year and we plan to continue to scale that. And the goal is to first, well, it's to figure out how to solve global poverty. There's been more money that's gone into global poverty that could actually solve it. Like with the amount of money invested, you could have solved global poverty, but it hasn't happened because the money transfer has been very inefficient. So we want to figure out an efficient way where we can get a Firstly, a small village out of poverty, then a district out of poverty, then hopefully a whole country out of poverty. And it's like a it's a crazy big goal, but then if you can achieve that at a small level, it can be scaled broader, and then hopefully then you can scale up to other countries. And I know it sounds a bit batshit crazy, but it's and uh, we may we may never achieve it, but it's it's what we're wanting to do. And by giving people money. It allows them to invest in things like invest in making a small business, buying a bicycle or a motorbike. We give people, I think it's 550 US dollars for the year. And the first program gave them that on a monthly basis. However, we're editing the program for the second larger cohort to be $50 up front. And that $50 up front allows them to take care of all their immediate needs, right? They, they may have debts, they may have to buy some grain, they may need food, they may have medical bills, they may have some urgent school fees, right? And that allows them to take care of that. It also then we give them a month or two to think about how they're going to invest their $500. So rather than it being like month on month, actually are investing in much larger things. Like, hey, I can lease a a plot of land, I can buy crops and fertilizer, I can buy a, a motorbike, I can invest in yeah, a lot of it's like medical stuff and education or a lot of it's like infrastructure for their houses. They don't have to every year replace their shore roofs, et cetera, et cetera. So it really empowers them to make their own decisions. And then that probably the best thing is that money starts circulating around the villages, right? So when you have a village that all has an influx of money, they then start buying from the local store in the village, the grain provider, like they're employing people to put that roof on their house or etc etc and so the uplifts and that money starts circulating around the community what we're also thinking about is how we can complement the cash transfers with things like educational interventions so how can we uplift alongside the cash the educational quality in these certain areas and then what infrastructure do they need do they have access to clean drinking water because some of those collective larger infrastructure projects that generally 
these places aren't good at collectivizing all their money and like, hey, let's all chip in and build a, a well. Like that just doesn't organically happen. So we're thinking about a few periphery things. In our foundation, we've probably started the other way. We've started with doing water bores in, in villages to stop people having to go to the riverbanks and get dirty water and all the complications. And it is this interesting trade-off between how do you put infrastructure, things in, that don't normally come out of organic people coming together versus the how do you give agency to the individual. So, look, it's extraordinary. And there, there's always like a bit of Maslow's hierarchy in needs, right? Like, Yes. You can't do anything if you're not healthy. If you don't have clean drinking water, you're going to have dysentery, you're going to be very unhealthy. So it's like you need the very, very basics, which is like, base health because if you don't have that base health you can give people money and then all their money will be spent on solving the symptoms of those problems that are caused by malnourishment and lack of clean drinking water yeah we started drinking water then we're moving on to sort of gm grain for drought tolerance and stuff but you're the sort of poster child in some sense what you and mel are doing is we we want founders to start thinking about giving now and not waiting until they're older because as you pointed out you know suffering doesn't wait until a funding round or an exit and there are ways that you can start giving early if you want to but just starting it and as i think hopefully you're seen to be getting this this sort of joy out of the help you're providing to people part of it's clearly coming from a basic humanity you guys have got that you just feel you should do the right thing but also sense is a sort of a a joy you're getting in in helping others. With your scale of problem, which is a billions of dollars of problem, how do you think about doing that effectively at scale? I mean, I know you you used a very good example of a startup and an MVP and you're building the MVP. How do you think about this sort of five years out? What does it look like, do you think, in the case of the work you're doing? I think that's why we've picked one or, or two projects, particularly the Give Directly project we're really doubling down on. Like we started off I think winding it back, I think the best thing everyone can do to start is just commit 1%. It's like not much. Like are you wealthy enough to give up 1% to help the world's poorest people in some way, shape or form? And I think for those that live in Australia or the US, I think the and are privileged, especially working in sort of like the knowledge workers, most of us are that privileged, right? And the act of committing 1%, then forces you to think through how you're going to distribute that 1%. And the act of thinking through how you're going to distribute that 1% starts to like get you to ask yourself questions. What projects do I care about? Is it education? Is it the environment? Is it poverty? Like is it climate change? That commitment of 1% forces you to start that journey. And then from starting that journey, you realise and you'll make some mistakes and there'll be some projects that really resonate. There'll be some that don't. And, and then you'll be like, hey, I'm on, I'm on the path now. And then if you choose, you can double down on things. You're like, oh, wow, I feel really proud of the impact of I'm having with my $100 or $1,000 or whatever. Do I think I can double down on that? Do my resources allow me to invest more? And is, is that a, a good use? Am I better off spending an extra thousand dollars a year on fancy drinks at a bar or I bring two people like literally out of poverty and change their life. Like I'd rather probably spend a hundred dollars or thousand dollars on helping people. The idea of starting early and we, you know, we have a whole bunch of resources to help founders think about how they can liquidate small parcels of equity and so they can start that journey. So very early and started with small amounts. Yeah. I mean, it's, e- it's easy to sell shares. Like, I mean, everyone's always selling shares and doing liquidity events at some point and it's pretty easy. It's more difficult to say, oh, I'm going to liquidate $50 million and, and buy a Ferrari and like a super yacht and blah, blah, blah. But we're like, oh, we're liquidating 50 or $100 million for the next couple of years to invest directly in philanthropy. You can see where this money is flowing into our philanthropic organisations. You're not going to get much pushback from investors if that money's going to make the world a better place. But if you're going to 
buy stupid shit that's going to make you look like a weirdo to all your staff and investors, then I'm, <laughs> it might get some more pushback and well, at least raise a few eyebrows. You know, I think it is easy to get a share sold you know, for good causes. Often when I've talked to wealthy people, young and old, it tends to be a top-down discussion, which is, oh, well, I've got, you know, a billion, 500 million, I'll give away, you know, 5% or 10%. And you guys seem to have started the other way around, which is how much do we need to live the life we want to lead and we have a right to lead? And then with, I think in your case, a huge dose of humanity and sort of humbleness in that, and the rest can get given away. If you were talking to an old rich white guy, as I have, who's starting the top-down sort of methodology and you're the bottom-up, how would you try and convince them to reverse their sort of their flow? So we didn't grow up with much money, right? Like my mum was a teacher, my dad was a boiler maker, but then we went into to work safe, which is like the safety inspection stuff. So, I mean, we had a house and we grew up well. But we didn't have much, we didn't, we weren't like rich by any stretch. But we had, we had an awesome upbringing, riding our bikes around and doing cool shit, going camping. I actually think, and that's really led us to believe like, I tell you what, I went on a fishing trip last week, right? And we went spear fishing and fishing and we just like took the boats out every day. We lucky we had boats, but that was the best trip ever. Like that was so much better than going to like five star hotels and restaurants we were staying in like it was actually a dilapidated shack and that was the best that was the best holiday i've had it didn't cost much right and it's like what kind of life do you want your kids to live right so like a lot of people say oh i'm doing this as a family nest egg right but you see all these people that are given everything right it's no satisfaction like i don't want to be given everything like i think that causes like mental health issues when you essentially grow up knowing you don't need to earn your way in life and you you grow up not feeling proud of your accomplishments because you've got this huge pool of cash that you know is going to be there. Like that will mess you up. I think it's unfair to take away the personal satisfaction from your kids of actually making it themselves. Because I don't know, I'm happy we did it ourselves. I uh, echo all your comments, and actually, the research actually shows that you know, generally speaking, intergenerational wealth doesn't help the children or the children's children, you actually do corrupt their lives. You think you might be doing the right thing and you're actually not. You take away their agency, as you've talked about, and they don't turn into good humans, sadly. I don't like hanging out with super rich people that grew up rich. I, like, all my friends like, grew up just like us, and they're, they're the fun people, so just get it. I'd agree with you. I've got this Venn diagram of, you know, of rich people overlapping with good humans. And there's a very, very, very small sliver of overlap that I found from, you know, my 64 years on the planet. Look, uh, Cliff, this has been fantastic. And I think the humanity that you and Mel are showing and the way you, you just sort of focus on really doing something meaningful at scale too is, is truly inspiring. And I am sure there'll be hundreds of founders who'll listen to this and feel inspired to do something meaningful, even if they're starting at their pledge 1% or they're moving a little bit of equity into a, a PAF or something, just starting small and then and building that. So I'd just like to close out with maybe just a rehash or summary of if, you, if you're talking to a young founder now who's starting their journey as you and Mel and Cam did so many years ago, and they haven't had the sort of the exposure maybe that you had in your India trips. How would you get them to sort of just focus on trying to do something early? Well, firstly, if you haven't traveled, just go travel, go to India. Like India is the most amazing country in the world. 
so like, yeah, if you just lived in your bubble your whole life, get out of your bubble. That's just like, that's not even to do with philanthropy. That's just like, fucking live kind of thing. And then and then if you want to start in the philanthropy, I think the 1% thing is the best way to do it. It's like a small sum of money and it's a forcing function that gets you on that journey. So, yeah. Just start. Just start. Stop thinking yeah. about it. Just start. That's fantastic, Cliff. Thank you so much for your time. Again, I think what you guys are doing is inspiring and a joy and a humbling experience to spend this time with you. Pleasure, man. Take care. This podcast was written by Catherine Feeney and Daniel Petrie. It was produced by Audiocraft. Thank you to our guest today, Cliff Albrecht. Visit startgiving.com for today's episode's show notes and learn more about what we do. You can subscribe to the Start Giving podcast wherever you get your podcasts or watch this conversation as a vodcast on YouTube.